0: Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. Amen. Good morning. Happy Father's Day. I feel like there should be like a like a really hearty like yeah. It's Father's Day. Let me try that again. All right, good morning. morning. Happy to see you all. Happy Father's Day. There we go. Okay, perfect grilling weather. Uh, uh, I, uh, Eric Rugg said outside on the porch, he said, this is proof that uh, God loves dads because it's perfect grilling weather. And I agree. I'm going to move this or I'll punch it. So. Uh, just going to go ahead and make a note of that. Uh, my name's Cameron, one of the pastors here, and excited to be with you all this morning. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Luke. We'll be in chapter 7, verses 36 through 50 today, talking about a sinful woman that comes to Jesus. This is not timed uh, <laughs> accordingly, so don't see anything. Uh, this, is, this is not fodder for your arguments later, dads. Okay. So uh, I was thinking about this passage this week, and uh, I, a story came to mind. I remember my grandpa, uh, who's quite a bit older than my grandmother, I, th- I think he was like 22 years older than my grandmother when they got married. And so uh, I spent most of my life with a grandfather who was you know, just quite a bit older, and uh, he was actually born in the middle of the Great Depression and so uh, he's 96 years old now and so he used to tell me stories all the time about his life and uh, he was a a serviceman and so his time uh, overseas and and, uh, serving our country in the military Uh, but one thing that he said one time that really just shook me to my bones when I was a kid uh, he started talking about something that was called icebox pie Uh, anybody like hear the icebox pie what do you think of? like a lemon icebox pie, right? This sweet, refreshing summer treat. That is not what he was talking about. Uh, In the Great Depression, uh, what he he said that his family would do, because they were experiencing some hard times economically, is they would empty out the freezer, whatever meat was there, whatever vegetables were there, whatever casseroles might be there, and put it into a pie, cook it, and that's what they would eat. So it was just like mystery meat pie every single day. And so it wasn't every single day, but it was something that they did. And uh, I remember he's, I was probably 10, 11 years old when he told me this, and like, I, my stomach just turned over. Uh, but I guess, the, you know, as they say, necessity is the mother of all invention. And uh, in a time, living through an experience like that certainly has a way of, of, of shaping your life as you know it. So they had to be creative with what they had and what was available. But even 60 to 70 years later, when he's telling me this story, uh, I I remember just kind of like seeing that and understanding him better. I always thought like, man, this guy's like a garbage disposal. He eats whatever, this is kind of strange. But this experience that he had in his life uh, had a way of shaping everything that he thought about and the way he even conceptualized something as basic as food. Significant experiences, especially ones that are shared by a group of people, have a way of not only shaping our own lives and worldview, but of affecting the culture around us. This morning, we will study this passage in Luke where Jesus shares this very unlikely meal with a Pharisee and this unnamed sinful woman And in this passage, what I want us to see is that an experience with the radical grace of Jesus will transform not only our own hearts and minds and lives, but will affect a culture around us. Let's read Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house, Jesus, and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, knowing the thoughts of his mind, answered him, saying, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender who had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? But she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. As I mentioned before, Significant experiences such as an experience with the radical grace of Jesus has this effect of not only transforming every part of our lives, but affects a culture around us. And that's the aspect of this passage I want to highlight today, that the gospel creates a culture of grace. The gospel creates a culture of grace because through the gospel we experience grace and through the gospel we become gracious. Let's look at that first idea that through the gospel we experience grace. Now, in verses 36 through 37, uh, this certainly sets the stage for a pretty interesting scene to unfold. Because often in the Gospels, when we hear the word Pharisee, we think bad guy. Like these are the guys that Jesus is opposed to, and he's always in an argument with them, he's schooling them on the law, whatever that might be. But here's a Pharisee who has invited Jesus into his home, and so they're there, and they begin to share a meal. And it says in verse 36 that Jesus is reclining at the table. So probably what's happened is the meal is done, and they're sitting around having some after dinner, a chat. When it says in verse 37 that a woman, a sinner, who has heard Jesus would be there, comes in and immediately goes to Jesus. And her actions are a little strange. In verses 37 through 38, it says that she begins to anoint Jesus' feet. And she becomes emotional. She begins to weep, and her tears wet his feet. She lets down her hair to wash them. It's this raw, intimate, vulnerable scene of this sinful woman overcome in the presence of Jesus, because he knew, she knew who He was and she knew what He was about. When you read this story, it's, it's likely that you get this sense of, of that it's awkward and uncomfortable. This feeling that this woman and her actions just simply don't fit. And and to compound this in the first century, and I think this passage alludes to this pretty strongly, in the first century there are very few things that a single, uh, unmarried, uh, free woman who was not in service to someone else could have done to support herself. And it's likely that she has found herself in this vulnerable position of selling her own body as a means of survival. So all of these things... Her appearance, which the Pharisees saw, her apparent vocation and her actions served to compound this, this uneasy feeling that her presence at the table is unfitting and unwelcome. But I think that's exactly what Luke wants us to see. You see, because all throughout his gospel, you think about the four different gospels we have come in harmony uh, to show the same gospel, to to show us the same Savior. And all throughout Luke's gospel, we see this theme kind of coming to the forefront as he demonstrates how Jesus always was preaching the good news to the outcast, the lowly, the undeserving. We see stories like the prodigal son, the healing of the demon-possessed, Jesus going to the social pariahs, the sick, the disabled, the overlooked, and the unworthy. So culturally, yeah, this woman had no place at the seat of the table with this Pharisee, not bad guy, this Pharisee, a guy was perfect to the letter of the law, and this prophet Jesus, who she knew who he was. And it's exactly what Simon thought when Jesus read his mind in verse 39. But hear this. The good news of the gospel did not fit Simon's cultural framework. And Jesus isn't the Savior that he expected. Rather, as Luke shows us throughout his gospel, our Savior has come to seek and to save the lost, Luke 19, 10. One who knew it is not the healthy who needed a doctor but the sick, Luke 5, 31. And friends, this is why the gospel is good news for us. The gospel is a proclamation of radical grace for even the worst of sinners because it's not based on our qualifications, our social status, or our merit, but based on the grace and mercy of our Savior alone. He has come near To undeserving sinners like us, and through his blood shed on the cross, he has imparted to us, the scriptures teach us, a righteousness that we did not earn and we do not deserve in Christ. We are fully known, fully loved, and fully accepted. There's no social ladder to climb, no religious hoops to jump through jump through simply by the humble faith of this sinful woman that we see here. Can we all come and partake of the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus? But I want to take a moment here, what might feel like a slight detour, to highlight yet another theme that I think that is at work both in this passage and a few other places in Luke. And we could highlight it in a couple of different places, but I feel the need to highlight it here. Because while I think this passage teaches us a general truth that anyone, regardless of their status, regardless of their sin, can come to Jesus and experience his grace, this is not just a lesson about sinners communing with Jesus, but of Jesus communing with women. And here's why I want to highlight this. One, because Luke, more than any other gospel writer, makes it a point at multiple places to emphasize that Jesus is a savior and Lord and friend of women. But also, I wanna highlight it here because I think that it's relevant for us because over the last hundred years, nothing has lodged in the social milieu quite like the question, what does it mean to be a woman? You think about the history of feminism and all these discussions that exist in the modern conversation, this question of what does it mean to be a woman certainly feels far from settled and probably not just in the world, but maybe in the hearts of many here as well. And while I don't expect that the answer can be fully found in this passage, don't get me wrong, I do want to highlight an important reality that I think provides clarity for women here at CTK who I know likely just in their lives, regardless of any particular experiences, will have an experience full of confusion, guilt, shame, and expectation, especially surrounding this question. Mom guilt is a real thing. I've certainly seen that to be true. So I hope that it's encouraging for your soul and clarifying To simply highlight a reality that I think we see in this passage, and that's this. It's not profound. Women have a place in God's kingdom. Women have a place in God's kingdom. In this passage, we see a sinful woman who has received grace from Jesus who is a friend of Jesus, who belongs to Him, who throughout the, through the overflow of our, her heart is faithfully serving Jesus. And if you skip down to the very next verses, we see this little travel narrative that we won't pick up in next week's sermon, but I wanted to highlight it here because I think it matters. We see that as Jesus and the twelve go out to do ministry, that several women are mentioned by name as being meaningfully engaged in the mission of God and the ministry of Jesus. And hear me, while I think there are many nuances to understanding womanhood, and I don't suggest that this passage diminishes any of them, I do want to highlight this simple truth clearly. If your view of women and womanhood is anything less than fellow citizens of heaven recipients of God's grace, who were called according to the purposes of God to make disciples, serve the church, and advance the gospel, then it isn't a biblical definition of womanhood. And I want us to see that clearly here. I want the women of CTK to be encouraged by this reality and not miss it. I want you to see and savor this truth that there is no lesser gospel for you. Because whether man, woman, social elite, social pariah, sick, healthy, able-bodied, or not, anyone who calls on the name of Jesus can experience his grace and belong to his kingdom and participate fully in his life and ministry and purposes. And the point I want us to see here, and I don't want us to miss... Is that the basis for this good news that our sins can be forgiven, our lives can be transformed, and we can belong to God's kingdom is and can only be the crazy, unimaginable grace of Jesus. And what I would suggest for us this morning is that we as a church and we as individuals need to grow deeper in the gospel. We need to grow deeper in our understanding of God's grace for us because it is the foundation and the context for our lives. There's a reason that Peter in 1 Peter 3.18 instructs us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ Jesus. Church, we need to grow deeper and deeper and deeper in the gospel day after day because we never graduate from our need for the gospel this is where I think the culture of grace that I think the gospel creates needs to root down deep first in our own hearts and minds and lives. Because when we experience the grace of Jesus, it ought to have a transformative effect on the whole person. And when I think just specifically to our context here at at CTK, how I think that we need to grow in this, how we need to deepen in our understanding and appreciation of the gospel, here's my honest diagnosis. Are you ready? My honest diagnosis is this. I think our church is starved for grace and sometimes we don't even know it. That's my honest read as a pastor of this church. I think we are starved for grace, and sometimes we don't even know it. My read might not be perfect, it could be mixed with error. Everything else that you see in God's Word uh, is not, and mine might be. But I want to see us grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. So I want you to just consider I have a few observations. As possible symptoms of a need to grow in our understanding of grace. As symptoms of a need to grow deeper in the gospel. And the first one is this. Strained doing for God. Strained doing for God. Here's what I mean by that. I think when I speak to uh, you all in counseling situations and when I come near to your lives, I know what some of your living rooms look like, many of yours, and and that is a wonderful treat that, that I count as one of the greatest privileges of my life. Don't get me wrong. But one thing that I see as being true at work in our church is there's a sense in which we're just kind of working on empty always. That there's not time for anything, that we are tired and burnt out. Hear this, grace rightly ordered produces work as an overflow. Grace rightly ordered produces work as an overflow. And when we get this wrong, the result is burnout. And I think we see that here in this passage. The Pharisee has no love for Jesus, no desire to serve him. This woman, with a deep experience of God's grace, serves as an overflow of her heart. Grace rightly ordered produces work as an overflow. We can't work our way into a greater appreciation of God's grace. We need to begin there. That's one thing that I see. The second, I say this in love, is a pride and arrogance. Experience with the grace of Jesus causes a transformation in personal humility before God and others. When I think of CTK, often we, come, we look like a put-together people. And that's great if we are growing in our holiness. That's great if all of that is the result of, of a radical work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But hear me, I want to maybe poke around in the places in our hearts and lives where that might not be the case. Where we look more like the Pharisee who does not see his need for the grace of Jesus and can't see his need for God. We as a people can become in love with our own sense of perfection, our own sense of doing. Pride has the effect of numbing our hearts for the need for God's grace. Church, we need to grow in this. We need to be a people who that humility is evident in our lives. We need to be a people who see ourselves the way that the Apostle Paul said, that that I am who I am because of Christ. We need to be a people who see that in a way that is so evident that everyone can see that, that it's, that it's the basis for who we are. It's the foundation that we stand on. There is no room for pride in the fullness of the gospel because what we experience in the grace of Christ Jesus is not of our own doing. Lest one may boast, as Ephesians chapter 2 says, it is totally and fully by the work of Jesus. Church, we need to set aside looking put together we need to set aside being the right kinds of christian people and we need to become the kind of people who depend on the grace of jesus who long to be broken and weak before him because in him there is mercy with a heart of humility god can work and the last one which is may feel like an opposite of the previous but I don't think that it is and I can say that for my own personal experience is severity with ourselves in the last month I've counseled three church members here at the church or had a discussion with three members at the church with this same kind of discussion that there's this sense in which we are so severe with ourselves that we feel far from the grace of Jesus We're so severe with ourselves because we see the grace of Jesus as being for everyone else possibly but ourselves because we see the depths of our sin and we live in the sorrow of that. And that produces a certain way of being that doesn't look like someone who's been changed by the gospel. It makes us timid to confess our sin because we believe that Jesus must love everyone else but ourselves and we will be the one who stands out. Church, the gospel of grace in our lives gives us a confident foundation, knowing that we are fully loved and seen and known and accepted by God. He died for us at our worst, that we might come to know him. There's no place for self-criticism and severity with our own hearts in light of the gospel. Because when God sees us, He sees the righteousness of Jesus and not our ugly, wicked self. So every thought and thing that you think about yourself, let's grant that every single one of them are true. That's wonderful because it makes the grace of God even bigger. Maybe these land with you and maybe they don't. But I would ask you to search your heart and consider, am I truly experiencing the grace of Jesus in a way that is shaping my whole self? Has the grace of Jesus changed the way I think about myself and about others? Has the grace of Jesus changed my heart where I have a love for God? Has the gospel changed my heart where I live in a way that is consistent with the life that he has called me to? Am I truly experiencing the grace of Jesus in a way that is shaping my whole self? And this conversation about a culture of grace, I want to start here at the place of our hearts because how we individually are or are not experiencing the grace of Jesus creates and reinforces a social environment that might or might not be gospel culture. I'll explain what I mean by that. second truth is this. Through the gospel, we become gracious. Of course, we see the opposite unfolding here in this passage with Simon the Pharisee who is unable to show graciousness or favor or even a place of sitting to this woman because of her sin. And in verses 41 through 42, Jesus tells him exactly why by way of a parable. This woman responds to Jesus the way that she does because she sees herself as a sinner in need of God's grace. Simon, who is unable to see himself in need of that same grace, is both cold in his love for Jesus and ungracious with this woman. And that's the irony of pride. Is that it just doesn't square with the reality. It not only blurs our sense of our own need for God's grace, which we so obviously need, but it deadens our love for God and also hardens our hearts and stunts our ability to show that same grace and love and compassion to other people. But friends, as we grow deeper in our awareness of our own needs for God's grace, a transformation of humility occurs in our hearts and we grow in that same capacity for grace for others because like in Jesus' parable here, we see ourselves as forgiven of a lot, not forgiven of little. And therefore, we forgive a lot and not a little. And I would just offer this as a check-in for your soul. This is convicting for me as I thought about this passage. If you are prone to be judgmental, if you are prone to be severe with other people, chances are you aren't experiencing the grace of Jesus yourself. And you're only being consistent. I get that. I want to have compassion and empathy there and call you to a way that is better. Jesus has grace for you and has grace for others. And it's important that we pay attention to how these things work among us because the cost of a graceless culture is massive. It is an oppressive, tyrannical, draining, uncompelling anti-gospel that we demonstrate with our lives, though our words ring of something sweeter and truer and better. Instead, friends, let's see that we, as we go deeper in our understanding and experience of God's grace, we begin to embody that grace in tangible ways, especially towards other people. Unlike Simon, who knew little of the grace of Jesus and was therefore unloving and dispassionate towards God and judgmental of a fellow sinner, that we would be a people who instead make it a priority. Make it a priority to embody The life-changing, soul-saturating goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we be a people who show that same grace towards undeserving sinners like ourselves. I pray that we would be a church who marks this out as a priority in our community, that we would be a people who acknowledge and celebrate the ridiculous grace of God and how it is at work in our lives. And as our hearts and our minds and our lives are being renewed in the reality of this gospel, day by day we would count it of the utmost importance that we show that grace and compassion to other people, especially fellow Christians. If there is any place where the grace of God should be seen as much as it is proclaimed, it should be in the church, the community of saints who have tasted and seen the Lord's goodness and grace. How is it, church, that we are the most severe with one another when we know each of our lives have been changed and marked out by the gospel of Jesus Christ? How is it that our most hateful thoughts, our most divisive actions are towards one another? This is not good. This is not gospel culture. This is not the way of living that Christ called us to. Our hearts and minds and lives as they are transformed by the gospel produce a, produces a softness and love towards and generosity and compassion for one another where we become patient and kind and loving just as our Heavenly Father is with us. And as a point of application, I want to do this again. I think the result of all of these things Seeing and knowing and embodying this gospel creates a culture. I want to point out a few characteristics of a culture of grace that can serve as a plumb line for us. There might be ways in which the grace of God transforms and shapes a culture that are different than this. I'm not saying that this is comprehensive, but here's a few that when I think of our church are relevant for us. Consider these things like things when I think about how I want to see the gospel root and take form and transform of people here. These are a few characteristics of a culture of grace that I pray are true of Christ the King Church. The first is this, a culture of grace is unanxious, generous, and extravagant. A culture of grace is unanxious, generous, and extravagant. I mean to say that the grace of God at work in our lives creates a social environment that is not, it, that is not precarious nor in crisis because we begin from a position of total acceptance and security in Christ. And therefore, we ought to be profoundly patient Kind, loving, generous, eager to see and celebrate the grace of God at work in one another. We don't withhold grace as a tactic for correction or, or with this idea that it'll just overwhelm somebody or, or lead them astray. No, we believe that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance, Romans 2.4 says, so we lead with that same posture. The culture of grace is unanxious, generous, and extravagant. Second, our culture of grace is dignified with correction. A culture of grace is dignified with correction. I heard Ray Ortland say this week that the the gospel culture doesn't exclude correction, it dignifies it. And what that means is that when we as a people are genuinely seeing and savoring the grace of Jesus, our correction has a purpose and an undertone of hopefulness. Because apart from the grace of Jesus, we are merely compounding the sense of guilt and shame and destruction that sin has already wrought in our lives. But correction in the context of grace is restorative and redemptive. Therefore, the prevailing ethic for our correction in a culture of grace ought to be the grace upon grace that Jesus has shown us. Grace upon grace, it says in John 1, verse 16. That our correction would be genuinely to the end in hopefulness that we might gain a brother, as Matthew chapter 18 says. Because we believe and hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ to transform and shape a community. So a culture of grace doesn't exclude correction, it dignifies it. Last, a culture of grace creates a greater sense of belonging. Belonging. A culture of grace creates a greater sense of belonging. I think in the gospel, we become eager to see anyone who would call upon the name of Jesus be changed by his grace, just as we have been. We tear down, therefore, barriers of politics and gender and nationality and culture to become a radically unified people brought together under the banner of the gospel, which transcends all of these things. This is the sweet sense of belonging that we have, not because of our uniformity, but because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which knits us together in the family of God, rich, rich. Poor, able bodied, differently abled, man, woman, child, African, Asian, or American, all of whom, in our own ways, who were far off, have been brought together by the blood of Jesus Christ. And therefore, the culture that we embody, the culture that is created around us, is one of belonging. Not because of ourselves or because of our similarities or because we line up and vote the same way. That's because of the unity that we have in Christ we've been brought together in his family by his blood that creates the ultimate sense of belonging that nothing else should be able to shake and that should be true of the culture around us when people come to ctk i shudder to think that they might look around or have a conversation with any one of us and say this is a partisan church i see where they're at i hope When people see us, they say this is a family whose whose greatest descriptor for their lives is child of God, children of God, family of people brought together under the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that would be a beauty that speaks volumes in a culture that is loud and chaotic. A culture of grace creates a greater and perhaps the ultimate sense of belonging. So I want to just ask us by way of application and by conclusion this morning to consider these things. Just think about these aspects of what a culture of grace looks like and, and ask yourself, am I embodying that personally? Am I embodying that, and are we embodying that? Am I embodying that, and are we embodying that? We are responsible for one another. So consider these things and ask yourself, is your life building gospel culture Or maybe more pointedly, can gospel culture even be built on your life? Meaning, are you experiencing the grace of Jesus? Are you demonstrating that grace to others? Church, where do we need to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus for the sake of ourselves and others? I leave us with these things. Let's pray. Father, we ask of you this morning. You who created all things, sees all things, knows all things. You who, in whom all things hold together. Who has sought us out and loved us. Who has desired to live in relationship with us. Who has called us together according to your purpose. Father, I pray that that by the work of your spirit that you would transform us. Transform us by the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. Father, transform our hearts in humility. Transform us, yes, to look more and more like Jesus, but Father, deepen our desire and burden to see the same be true in the lives of our brothers and sisters and those in the world who do not know you. Father, your grace at work in our life is the thing that changed everything for us. Father, we desire to be a people who taste and see and know and experience that, but embody that both personally and collectively together as a church. Father, I ask in our witness to our city and to our world that when people look at us together as a body, that they would be nearer to the gospel of Jesus Christ than some lesser gospel. May that be true of the message that our lives individually and corporately proclaim. And Father, we ask, knowing that your grace is sufficient for us, your power is made perfect in our weakness, Father, make us weak that you might make us strong. Grow us, Father. Make us look more like Jesus. For all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksnc.com.